0: Thank you. You may be seated. And I uh, want to add a welcome to what's already been said this morning and uh, let you know that Matt is speaking up at Crossway in Bergall this morning, uh, giving Jason a little bit of a break. Uh, so be praying for Matt while he's up there. And uh, we'll be here today. We'll go through a little bit of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is not exactly a, a perhaps a familiar book to you. I believe it's at page 518 in the pew Bible that's in front of you, uh, in the, underneath the seat in front of you perhaps. Don't be embarrassed to use a table of contents if you don't know where it is, that's what it's there for, but uh, it's, if you can find Psalms and go to your right a little bit, it will, that book will be there, Ecclesiastes. So I, I know that you just got seated, but if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand, and we'll read uh, from Ecclesiastes, and uh, we'll begin at verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is Vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I the preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out, out I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to, to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. So I said in my heart, I I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. From what in much wisdom is vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart to cheer. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And he who knows whether he'll be wise or whether he'll be a fool, yet yeah, he will be master for all which, for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. And this also is vanity. So I turned about and gave, up, gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toils and the striving of the heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I hope your heart has been encouraged by the reading of the Lord's word this morning. (laughs) I'll ask you to pray with me and then we'll, we'll dive into this. Lord, no part of your word is given to us that isn't given to us for our um, training and enrichment and to help us now how to navigate life but also how to know you better. And so I pray that as we go into this book of Ecclesiastes that you would help us to see what you have done for us. Help us to see hope inside the pages of your word. Lord, we are foolish people indeed if we think that somehow we have a capacity to enliven our own hearts and so we depend on you uh, as hearers of the word we depend on you for you to plant it deep within our hearts and to make abiding change inside of us and so we ask and I ask for your help this morning and pray these things in Jesus name amen thank you and you may be seated In the June 14th, 2009 issue of Parade Magazine, Shia LaBeouf was interviewed. Most of you will be familiar with his name. He was in the the Transformer movies and Eagle Eye, Indiana Jones, and a couple of other, or several other movies. He was 23 years old at the time, and this is what he says in that interview. Sometimes I feel I'm living a meaningless life, and I get frightened. I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it, and I'd be on my way. Actors live dependent on being validated by other people's opinions. The good actors are all screwed up. They're all in pain. It's It's a profession of bottom feeders and heartbroken people. Why did the love of my life and I break up, he asked, puzzled. Man, I have no idea. What was that all about? I have no answers to anything. None. Why am I an alcoholic? I haven't a clue. What is life about? I don't know. A few years ago, not too long after that, there was an interview with Tom Brady, the quarterback for the New England England Patriots. He was 27 years old at the time had won three Super Bowls, and in their interview that took place on 60 Minutes, he said, why do I feel after having three Super Bowls that there has to be more? There has to be more. The interviewer asked him, well, what is it? He said, I have no idea. I have no idea. Some of these people we look at, and we think that the accomplishments that they have had should set them up for life and somehow, in some way, make them successful, not only on the exterior, but on the interior And yet, a lot of people walk around unsatisfied with the life that they've been given. And that is not just the case for those who are not followers of Christ, but if we're not careful, it can become true of us as well. Eugene Peterson writes about the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says Ecclesiastes is a John the Baptist kind of book. It functions not as a meal, but as a bath. It's not nourishment, it's cleansing. We read Ecclesiastes to get scrubbed clean from illusion and sentiment. That's a lot of what we read in chapter 1 and what I read so far in chapter 2. But I want to walk us through just a little bit. I'm going to have to appeal to the remainder of the book that we have not read. But if you can trust me a little bit on that this morning, you can read the remaining chapters uh, this afternoon to, to back me up to make sure that I'm actually speaking the truth to you. But in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the, the writer of the book self-identifies as the preacher. Some translations might use the word teacher. We don't know. It may have been Solomon. Solomon. Many people think it was Solomon, some think it was not Solomon, it doesn't name him as the author, but the author does identify himself in his role, and he calls himself, as I said, the preacher, or the teacher, or convener, it might say in some translations. The Hebrew word is kahalith, and it just means a gatherer, one who speaks to a gathered crowd, And that's a little bit of where we get the name of the book from, Ecclesiastes. You may have heard, if you've been around church life, that the Greek word for gathering is ecclesia, And so, Ecclesiastes is someone speaking to a group of gathered people. And that's where the book gets its name. So, he identifies himself in his role, but he also identifies himself in his family, son of David. Now, whether it was a direct descendant or generations down, we don't know. But he he identifies himself as a son of David, king of Jerusalem. Well, the King David, the great King David, took Israel from a small struggling kingdom state and over the course of his 40 years in power, it rose up to become a national power. By the end of David's reign, there was victory on every side. And so when he died, he passed on to his son an impressive kingdom. There was rest from enemies. There were good treaties with the surrounding neighbor countries. There was impressive wealth. And we might expect... That someone who received this kind of a kingdom, at rest, with wealth, successful in every, by every outward measure, well, might expect, expect that someone who wrote about that kingdom would produce some sort of a bracing song of triumph. About how God had brought all things together and th- all, everything was working well. After having so much going his way, having so much that is handed to him on a platter, we might assume that there would be just a wonderful trumpet sound of victory. But this is his summation at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity. This phrase, vanity of vanities, kind of bookends this, this book. This is the first bookend at chapter 1, verse 2. It appears again at chapter 12, verse 8, towards the end of the book. But in between, it is mentioned 28 other times. So 30 times across the course of this short book is this phrase, vanity of vanities. It's a little bit difficult to capture exactly what that means, but it has the idea of incomprehensible or mysterious enigmatic. Maybe impossible to understand. But it also has a sense of vapor or smoke or maybe a bubble that, that kind of ascends up and then you flick the bubble and it just kind of dissipates and disappears. And so this is what his summation of life is, as he is speaking, under the sun, it is vanity of vanities. And what the teacher of this book is trying to do is his aim is to force us to consider what life looks like under the sun. Now, it's important that we understand it's not an assessment of all life, but it is a summation of life exploration. And his conclusion at the end of his exploration is that all is vanity. So what is the problem? Well, there are a few things that that come to mind, as you will discover, if you read the book. One is the diminishing returns of pursued pleasure. There's a cluster of books in the Old Testament, five books that are called the Books of Wisdom, of which Ecclesiastes is one. Each of them address living life with wisdom. The first of these books is the book of Job. And if you're familiar with the book of Job, it discusses the life of a man who is caught in the riptide of suffering. And that that book records Job grappling with God in the darkness of life under extreme hardship. Ecclesiastes is also a wisdom book, but it's not a book like Job is. It's a book that's not written in the killing fields, but in the county carnival. The question in the book of Job is how we worship God through suffering. The question in Ecclesiastes is how we worship God in leisure and in comfort. Job addresses the poverty of the soul. Ecclesiastes addresses the pleasures of life. And as we walk through our lives, and as we walk through this carnival fair, as uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes explores a little later in the book, we walk down through this fair, and there's multiple vendors on every side. And all of them are desperate for us to try their goods. The currency that they will accept is our life. That is, where they want us to exchange part of our life for the good that they promise. And they're quite willing for us to gamble our whole selves on the fund that they say that they will offer. The writer of Ecclesiastes lists about nine of these various things that are offered to us. It's a loud place, this carnival fair. The vendors are competing for our attention. And they loudly try to outpromise each other about the satisfaction that they can deliver to us. There's a lot of takers at this vanity fair. Some of them are like the young prodigal son that we read about in the Gospels. And they rush from vendor to vendor and spend all that they have. They have no plan beyond their immediate passions, and they grab the cotton candy and the deep fried Snickers and try whatever they are offered. And in time, they run out of both money and life, and they sit dejected, wondering if it is not best to just go on back home. In this crazy world of loud beckoning and charming calls, there stands a figure, the teacher from the book of Ecclesiastes. And he's standing like a rainy storm cloud on a sunlit day in the middle of the road. And he stands in the middle of this carnival road and he exposes the charade games that the vendors are playing. And he announces to all who will listen, and us if we will listen, that he has already traveled through this fair. He has already seen the smoke and mirrors of the marketers. He knows that whatever game you play, it has been rigged and ultimately the house will always win. He's been a consumer and now he's writing his review and in this review he's writing so that we will know the value of the product before we spend our hard-earned life on all the hype that is given to us and his conclusion is that the carnival is vanity of vanities. But there's another reason for that because not only is there the the, the, the unlimited uh, the, the, pro, the diminishing returns of Pursue pleasure, but there's the unsettling reality of unanswered questions. As you make your way through the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer does not avoid the hard things. While we live, he says, there are many questions that simply will not be answered. We read earlier that the wise person and the foolish person both have the same fate that await them. The unrighteous, he says later, sometimes prosper, while the righteous suffer. One person works hard for gain and he gets ahead and then he dies and leaves it all to a profligate fool who does not handle money well. He concludes that it is better to pursue wisdom than it is to live in folly. But in the end part of life parts of life are inscrutable. Some mysteries in life remain mysteries. And he says this is vanity of vanities this is emptiness. But all the pleasures that we pursue and all the questions that we have also end with this reality, the looming specter of our impending death. And so, in this 18, or in this small book, 18 times in the book, the writer mentions death. And he says again and again to us that both the rich and the poor die, the wise and the simple alike die. Life is fatal. So he says then that it's better to go to the house of mourning where people see that others have died than it is to go to the house of parties. Because going to the house of mourning and realizing that we have a, a term limit on our life is the best preparation for living. And so if we're going to live well, we need to understand very clearly that life will end. But he says after all of this that that too is vanity of vanities. He's pursuing all these things, and he's pursuing it because of this question that we found in verse 3. He asks the question What does man gain by all the toil that toils under the sun? What's the reward for all of our work? All of us find ourselves at different stages of life. Some of you are just starting out in a career, some are in school, getting ready to go to a career. Other, others of us are partway through and some have finished up their, at least our occupational career. Some have been parents. Now the, parent, the kids are out of the home. But what's the ultimate reward for all of our work? What value is there to the things that we do? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? All of us are concerned with this. We want gain. Some profit margin that remains after the costs are counted. We want financial gain, of course. We want to get ahead. But our concern is much larger than finances. The preacher's question is directed towards the investment of our lives. Will there be gain at the end? Or will our lives be an empty exercise that has us chasing after the wind? When life is through, when this life is over, we want some leftovers that somehow say that we actually mattered. So we look for multiple ways to find significance and satisfaction. We refuse to believe that under the sun we will discover mostly disillusionment. We do not want that to be our, our, our call. So the, the author of the book wants to push us to the logical conclusion of living life under the sun. If God is not taken into account, what happens? What happens? God intends, as one writer says, that we know Him by looking plainly and without polish at ourselves. No smoke and mirrors about life. So, the teacher becomes our tour guide. And He sets us up on a treadmill that is making a lot of motion but not really going anywhere because that's what life will be like under the sun if we don't, don't take God into the account. Don't have time to develop it this morning, but if we had time to develop it, we'd find out that this treadmill takes us through a couple of things. One, in the first part of chapter 1, it talks about the monotony of life, and then the vanity of wisdom, and then in chapter 2, the futility of wealth, and then the end of chapter 2, the certainty of death. But for our purposes this morning, we'll just take the first one, the monotony of life. And so we look at verse 4, and it says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever the generations just move on. I'm a new grandfather. If the Lord blesses me, I'll know Josie as she grows up. If the Lord chooses to be further gracious, I'll know her children. But I won't know their children or their children. I met my grandfather. I don't know my great-great-grandfather's name. I'm sure I could find it out, but I don't know it. Generations come. Generations go. To the rising generation, the generation coming up, anyone over 30 seems old-fashioned and out of touch. This is uh, Philip Ryken that's saying this. But on the other hand, older folks are often shocked by the lack of respect they get from the younger generation. But it's always been this way. Listen to Socrates. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners. Contempt for authority. They show disrespect to the elders. (laughs) And so it says at the end of the verse 4, but the earth remains forever. Nothing's changed. Life goes on. You and I will pass off the scene. Forgotten, largely. There might be some luminaries who are are known to people, but even if you think about our own culture, we think of George Washington, we think of Abraham Lincoln, people who are at least remembered by us as very important, but if you shift to another culture, show up in France, for instance, George Washington's just kind of a blurb inside of a history book. It means nothing to them. Why should it? Generations come and generations go. And then the author talks us to three illustrations about the monotony of life. And so he talks at Vlaav about the sun and he says the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. You may have a footnote there in your Bible. Mine does and I think the ones in the pew do where it says hastens to the place where it sits. I said pew. We don't have pews in here if the Bible is in the chair. (laughs) uh, But there's a footnote there that says and hastens to the place where it rises. The footnote indicates that it returns panting. The sun's tired. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. For however many years the earth has been around, has been around the sun has done the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Nothing changes. Verse 6, he talks about the wind. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. There's a relentless repetition of the, sun, of the wind going south, making its way back around to the north. So in verse 4, you have this progression from east to west that the sun makes. Now at verse 5, you have this progression from south to north. So east, west, south, north, everything's the same. Repetition again and again and again. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea but the sea isn't full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. So the streams go in this rotation of working its way down to the to the lake or, or sea and then there's the evaporation and it becomes a cloud and then it drops rain and then it makes this cycle again and again and again. In the 1920s, 30s, uh The song was made popular, probably had been around for a while, but it says, I get weary and sick of trying, I'm tired of living and scared of dying, but old man River, he just keeps rolling along. And that's what happens in life, it just keeps rolling. Verse 8 says, all things are full of weariness, a man can't utter it. The contemporary English version translates it like this. All of life is far more, bur- far more boring than words could ever say. In verse 8, it goes on to say, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. Our senses are never satisfied. So we have Hulu, Netflix, HBO, 24-hour news networks, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Pinterest, Over and over and over and over the images come. But we keep looking. Our eyes are never full. It says the ear is never filled with hearing. So we have Spotify and iTunes and iHeartRadio and YouTube Playlist and Google Music and Amazon Music and on and on we could go. And you never listen to the songs and say, okay, that's it. I heard the song I needed to hear. I'm done. Your ears still stay hungry. We keep listening. We're never satisfied. So verse 9, it says then, what is what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. It might seem like there's some new things under the sun. In September, every year, Apple has their big special event. And they bring out some new tools, some new implement. But what happens is that the big reveal of these newest products are met with kind of a ho-hum. Yeah, we've seen all this before. And in a year, it's old. In three years, you can't even use it anymore because the software is rolled off the scene. There's nothing new. Even the most radical inventions are just new ways to do old things. All the bells and whistles are able to help us communicate, and we've been doing that for thousands of years. And whether you drive a Tesla or whether you ride a donkey, they're just different ways to get from point A to point B. We've been doing this a long time. There's nothing new under the sun. And so we have that saying that says, the more things change, the more things stay the same. So verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be and among them who comes after how long until the current or newest iPhone is just on the trash heap of forgotten items? Anybody here remember vinyl records? They're making a comeback, I understand. How about eight tracks? Mm-hmm, see some nods. Cassette tapes, anybody? Yep. CDs? Hardly use those anymore either. And we're only... 20 years removed from some of these things, and a lot of the young people don't know what they are. There's no memory of what came before. Now, I need to say that we're just seeing a snapshot of Ecclesiastes in these verses. It goes further. The a whole story, as the writer will make clear in time. It's a way to see life, but it's not the only way to see it. Like life, the Bible is a long book. And inside of the pages of the Bible, there's an unfolding drama that tells us that the snapshots are helpful, but they don't provide all of the details. And the nuances, the other details are really, really important. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us what life looks like under the sun. And if you read inside of the book of Ecclesiastes, you will see that phrase as it returns again and again, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, this is what life looks like. But the whole biblical perspective is what life looks like above the sun. Above the sun, there's a broader perspective. It's no longer just the push and pull of mechanical life. Because above the sun, there's an invested God who outlasts the boundaries of the earth. Under the sun, it seems like the sun rises and sets wearily and goes back to its starting place. Above the sun, we read from Psalm chapter 19 that it says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day pours out speech and night after night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And listen to how Psalm 19 describes the sun. In them, he has sent a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. How can the writer of Ecclesiastes talk about a son wearily running its course while the psalmist talks about the sun returning like a strong man running its course with joy? Well, it, it, it's just this, that the writer of Ecclesiastes is writing as if he has forgotten God. He's writing under the sun. The writer of Psalms is remembering God. The God who superintends his world, who sees his saints, and who saves sinners. The scripture says in another place in Psalms that he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. The winds that the teacher of Ecclesiastes finds boringly wearisome, wearisome is under the sun. But when viewed above the sun, they are happy servants of the living God. And that's why in Lamentations chapter 3, Chris read to, it, to us last week, it says this Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, the difficulties under the sun. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Therefore, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So the teacher asks the question, what profit is there in everything that man does? Jesus asks the same question in the Gospels, and he adds a little bit to it. So Jesus is with his disciples, and he's talking to them. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So, Jesus doesn't command or condemn gain or profit of life, He encourages it. He wants us to find our lives. But He does tell us that we will not find our lives if we forfeit our soul in the process. Gaining the whole world does not help us find ourselves. God, the writer of Ecclesiastes says later, has set eternity in our hearts. And for that reason, we cannot look to the temporary realities to provide eternal meaning. All the things that we find in this world will ultimately leave us standing wanting, lacking. There are a lot of great things in the world to be enjoyed. But there are awful things to worship that can never provide satisfaction. Satisfaction. Our problem is not that we are leading boring lives. Our problem is that if we forget the Creator, if we forget to remember the Creator and the Redeemer, then everything turns into monotonous drivel. Nothing is sad, nothing is funny, nothing is tragic, and nothing is enjoyable. we become too full to enjoy food, too sexualized to enjoy sex, too cynical to enjoy knowledge, too busy to enjoy work, and too bored to enjoy life. So, this is not just flipping our perspective about life. It's remembering to see the whole true drama of creation and redemption. If we're not careful, we'll develop a spiritual myopia that only sees the world through a lens that is under the sun. We forget that finite pursuits can never satisfy our infinite souls. We can wrongly assume that the trinkets that are offered at the carnival will bring some ultimate satisfaction. So we gamble our lives away on the frustrating business of amassing what ultimately cannot be kept. The way that we find ourselves is not by relentlessly gorging ourselves on all pursuits under the sun. The way to find ourselves is remembering our Creator, who is also our Redeemer. He broke into the His world... And he granted meaning and purpose where there otherwise would be none. He came down under the sun where we were squinting and sweating underneath underneath the heat of the sun. And he came down to squint and sweat with us. And he subjected himself to the same death that we will all die. But in his death, he died for our sins. And in dying for our sins, he opened up heaven for us. So he crashes the darkness of monotony. And he says to us, I will make all things new. Through Jesus, he has given us, his followers, a new name, a new heart, a new life. And he's making a new heaven and a new earth. The teacher wants us to remember that God stands outside of our world. But that he breaks into our world. And he breaks into our world to set us free from these pointless pursuits. By rescuing us from our sin. He also rescues us from a hamster wheel existence. So the teacher gets the end of his address and at the end of the book, he summarizes and he says it this way. Let's hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Remember your creator and your redeemer. And live simply. Enjoy your food. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your work. Jesus stands beside us underneath the sun. He feels the heat of the sun's rays. And he knows what we live by experience. And so he says to us, in this world you will have trouble. That's under the sun. But he also says to us, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's above the sun. We sang while about go the song, a good and gracious king. Not only is he a good and gracious king, but he's strong and kind. We're going to sing in just a minute the song that says, Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. Jesus said if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on the cross that he will come to me. The Lord is good. And the Lord is faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. I'll ask you to pray with me. Lord, in the busyness of our lives, it's easy to forget that you superintend all things and that you are present with us. And we are tempted to pursue pleasure, pursue wealth, pursue work, pursue all sorts of things that are not you. So I ask that you would help our minds to be engaged in remembering that you are our creator, you are our redeemer, you are our sustainer, and that you are strong and kind. And our ultimate satisfaction always comes from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.